Hi everyone and welcome to How Is Today. How Is Today is a podcast that breaks the silence around grief, one curious question at a time. My name is Albie Shale. And I'm Clemmy Clough. And we both lost our parents unexpectedly. I lost my dad, age 20, at Glastonbury Music Festival. And I lost my mum in the 2004 tsunami in Thailand when I was 13 years old. Clemmy and I were brought together by the shared experience of losing a parent. And by the confusion of what came next. What the two of us call the octopus of grief. Don't worry, we'll explain what that means in a little bit. So it's been two years since we decided to go on this journey together. This quite weird, wonderful and slightly frightening journey to explore grief and to see if we can make a difference in the way that people deal with it. And we believe that How Is Today can be the catalyst that we need. It's not just the name of our project. It's also a curious question for grievers and their friends. Because the silence around grief happens when we don't ask each other curious questions and when friends worry too much about having all the answers. For the past two years, we've been asking each other curious questions, like how is today? And it's really helped us understand our own octopus. It's made it feel seen, heard, and dare I say it, eventually loved. In this podcast, we'll be talking to each other about our grief, but also to some incredible guests. We'd love you to join us on this journey. We hope you enjoy it, learn from it, and then pay it forward. In this first episode, we're gonna start with Albi, my co-founder and now close friend, and learn from his story about grief. So today I'm playing host and I'll be you in the hot seat. Lucky you. <laughs> and to really understand what we're trying to do, we first, I think, need to start at the very beginning. And the very beginning of this is the story of me and you. So, Albie, why don't you tell me about the story of how we met? So, Clem and I have two mutual friends. They individually invited us to their house. And we had eight to ten people there. It was a wonderful evening that took a direction that I wasn't really expecting. But... I really believe we were meant to meet and what happened was such a meaningful experience for me and I believe the same for you and we're really bonded you know most people ended up going to bed by one or two o'clock and you and I stayed up to the wee hours of the morning sharing and I got to a place where I'd basically been pushed by my own pain for so long that I felt the need to express it because I was ashamed of my grief and I was guilty about my grief. I knew that the time had come for me to go and see someone, a professional and talk about it. And I was scared to do that. And when I saw you and I saw your kindness and empathy and eagerness to discuss this subject, I just thought, well, if I can talk to this stranger about my grief, then you know maybe I can talk to a professional in a couple of weeks time. And so I just opened up and what then took place was a really beautiful reciprocal exchange of stories and tragic stories. But out of that came a beautiful friendship and an ambition to, to change the grief space, to remove this stigma in a way that was refreshing and different and 
the sort of thing that you and I both would have wanted when we were going through our own tragedy. Though we've been speaking about grief and our journey with grief, I don't think we've nearly spent enough time on the person who brought us together and who now kind of binds us in this grief together. So your dad, Christopher Shale, I've heard you describe him as your partner in crime. You guys got your noses pierced together and you guys were thick as thieves. Um, in fact, the last moments of your life, of his life together, you were charging around in Glastonbury. So I have this incredible picture of your dad in my head, but I would be interested to hear how you describe him. Firstly, I want to put the record straight and say it was a tongue piercing, not a nose piercing. I don't know whether that's better or worse, but <laughs> it, feels, it feels important to say that it was a tongue piercing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he was the most phenomenal human being. He really just, he was a breath of fresh air. Every room that he went into, he brought energy and zest and mm. kindness and... He was my hero and still remains, you know, one of the most incredible human beings in my eyes. But he was also a complex person, like we all are. You know, he had flaws and he had things that he regretted in his life. But he was, I could really epitomize him in, in a couple of ways. One would be, yeah, this ability in his mid-50s when he was after a bottle of wine or maybe two or three bottles of wine with me and my godfather, he was open to or even agreed to get his tongue piercing for a bet with my godfather. And he went through with it because he was a man of, you know, a man of his word. And it was one of the most amusing things that I've ever seen. And lots of his friends and people who knew him for decades were, you know, very perplexed, um, which encapsulates his humor, I think, perfectly. But he was also just a very honorable man. I remember once I got home from London and I was gloating that I wasn't forced to pay a train ticket. And he made me send £26.50 to First Great Western because that was stealing. Too right. <laughs> and that again encapsulated this really kind, um, considerate, mm. charming man. And I lost him in the most tragic way imaginable when he was at Glastonbury. We were all there. We'd woken up that morning and we had some sore heads, my brother and I. He woke us up with a water pistol actually spraying us in the face saying, come on boys, it's time for breakfast. And we'd had about two hours sleep and certainly weren't keen for breakfast, let alone a water pistol in the face. But we were then and had breakfast together and he was full of life which is ironic considering he was clearly not full of life and he was the life and soul of breakfast teasing everybody and laughing and uh, messing around with magicians and whatnot and we went to watch some music some very quirky sort of rock and roll music that he was sort of bouncing along to and he loved Glastonbury because it was 150,000 people who were different genders, different ethnicities, different, just a really different group of people who didn't care about their differences because they all loved music. And that was really him. He was a humanist. He loved people. And we went and watched this rock and roll band and had a couple of coffees to soothe the hangover. And I remember him saying that morning about the things that he wanted to do in his life, the books he wanted to write, the 
projects in Africa that he wanted to to build. And he was speaking like he normally would, really, just sort of inspired and empathetic and excited about life. And you know, little did we know that he was, you know, in his last morning and he went off and took a phone call and we never saw him again. He had a heart attack on on a portaloo and he was lost for 18 hours maybe um turns out he died within the first hour but we didn't know that and my brother and i we looked for him for three or four hours but we just thought there was bad signal and we we decided to carry on with you know with the day and went off to party and i can talk more about the morning after later but that was sort of him in a nutshell and uh and how we experienced our last days together it's equal parts heartbreaking but it's also lovely to have known that the last moments were this big reveling you know charging around with your dad like he's a peer like he's an equal i think that's one of the things that i feel like i really missed out on because my mother died when I was 13 and I wasn't a very easy teenager. Middle children everywhere probably could empathize with the state of feeling like your older sibling is kind of God and the younger sibling is the baby can do no wrong. And I was definitely the one in the middle that tested things. So being sort of 13, 13 going on 18 in London, pushing boundaries, really pushing my mom's patience to the limit. We never got to that space, which is something that I think I've had to kind of deal with, with, you know, the state that we're calling grief. You know, grief is about losing the person and the sorrow that you feel about that, but it's also all of the moments that you've lost and those moments may not have happened. So it's those moments like you're talking about charging around with your dad at Glastonbury. I mean, I doubt my mom would have gone to Glastonbury. She might've done actually. I mean, she was quite, she's quite vivacious and she was up for sort of anything, but it's those moments hearing you describe that. I feel so sad, obviously that he's gone, but I also feel so happy that, you know, that was one of the last charging around points. I feel like that's, feels like a, a fitting last few moments for a guy with that much energy and vigor. I agree. I mean, it's quite rock and roll to die at Glastonbury. And right. <laughs> although the aftermath and the, uh, you know, the press coverage and the journalists outside our house were, you know, awful. And the words that are left unsaid when you lose someone in such unexpected circumstances were also awful. But I count my blessings that I'm one of the lucky people who had a role model and a deeply affectionate, charismatic humorous intelligent man as a as a father for 19 years and although i miss him terribly and i mm. i look forward to the day i see him again albeit it's not going to be for a long long time it's strange it's strange when you realize age 19 how impermanent and how fragile life is you know he was there looking at me saying these are the things that i want to do with the rest of my life and then life just was taken away from him and it it really struck me right then and there how precious life is and how little time we have here. We've got to make the most of it. Mm. So who was Albie back then? And how do you think your dad's death impacted him? 
How did you cope with it? I would say Albie is a very different person now to the one who lost his dad age 19. I can sort of encapsulate myself in this idea of ignorance was bliss. I was pretty ignorant about the state of the world and I took a lot of things for granted. You know, I won the postcode lottery. I was born into a very lucky family that was able to provide and I just never comprehended the idea that I would lose someone so close to me so soon. And I think I wouldn't describe myself as, as ignorant anymore because of that experience. And it was, you know, nine years ago this year. And it's strange because some people have said, and I find it hard to reconcile, but I also really connect with it that it was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me because I grew up pretty quickly. I cared about the impact that I was having on the world thereafter. I cared about taking responsibility for myself and trying to find that balance between being silly but also being serious because we're here once. And you know, when you see the person you love most or one of the people you love most say to you that they want to do these things and then they end up not being able to, it really drives you to express yourself and to try and be as honest and as authentic and as vulnerable and as beautifully imperfect as you can be. I've learned and you've helped me learn that expressing your grief and trying to channel it into helping people is a great way to heal. And I think that's what we've both done on this journey of how is today. So that brings us to a good point, actually, I think, to talk about how we've tried to help each other, but also help other people express this very intangible, at times, feeling and how we try and make sense of that. And we came up with this rather strange mascot of the octopus, this idea of this is not an elephant in the room, this is an octopus in the room. Grief is an octopus. I loved it immediately and connected with it because I thought it was such a clever way of describing something that was indescribable, this bubbling, shape-shifting, eight-tentacled, weird thing that camouflages itself so it can kind of be anywhere at any moment and you sort of don't really know until you see it or you see it move. And this thing that has these sticky paws that would stick onto you. So this idea that when your person leaves, the octopus is the thing that's sort of handed to you and it's it's yours to look after. And this thing occupies the space in your life like your person would. So in my case, my mum, this is my mum leaving in, in, a, in a wave in the tsunami. And then as I kind of washed up in a car somewhere after a minute of being in this wave, which was an insane experience, then being left with this octopus that you're not briefed to carry, but is yours to bear for the rest of your life. And I wanted to hear how you describe that and how, how you think the octopus sort of helps you describe and express your grief. There seems to be this miscommunication and misunderstanding about grief, which is that the griever should be the one pointing out that their octopus exists when I guess what I think and what we think a lot of grievers want is for people to realize that there is an octopus, this thing, as you say, this 
eight-legged, three-heart animal that you inherit. It's given to you. What's difficult is actually not the octopus itself because that's just part of life. And what really I think we've learned on this journey is that the silence that comes with the octopus, the inability of people to ask questions, very simple, curious questions after you know six months is, is the problem because the octopus is neither good nor bad. It just is. And I think when it becomes something that's unmanageable and something that you're ashamed of is when you're not able to find ways to express and describe and let people see your octopus. And the best way to do that is is by asking the person with the octopus a curious question. How would you describe your struggle with, with grief? How did that take shape in your life? I mean, it was such a tragedy. And afterwards, friends and family and, you know, godparents descended on on our house. And, you know, you talked beautifully about all of the lasagnas, the lasagnas. that you had afterwards. Oh, the lasagnas. I love lasagna. <laughs> I love lasagna too. <laughs> and, yeah, we were the same. We had you know, godmothers and godfathers and, and friends and family descend on our house and cook for us for weeks and weeks. And it was strange now, you know, thinking back, but it was a special time because we were all- Together. Together and mm. we were being supported and it felt like that sort of human unity and community that- um, Totally. I personally, you know, crave and I, I get the feeling a lot of people do as well. I really genuinely believe that the weeks and months after you lose someone are, are challenging, yes, but I think where it becomes really difficult is after the year mark and where you've really got to do the work to process what you've gone through because you've gone from the shock and trauma stage to actually trying to live with your octopus. and. Mm -hmm. That was where it became difficult because you know people didn't know what to say. People avoided asking the questions because they didn't have the answers. People were so uncomfortable with the elephant or the octopus in the room that they didn't ask the question or because of our society, they genuinely believed the best thing to do was avoid the conversation. Just completely don't mention it, right? Just yeah. don't say anything at all. Yeah, and it baffles me. It baffles me because we're all searching for catalysts for connection. We're all looking for ways to to find a social connection. We are social beings at the end of the day. And this this topic, death, is such a big part of life. And yet we just don't discuss it. And I believe, based on the conversations we've had with people, that there is some truth to what we're saying. People didn't ask the questions because they feel like they don't have the answers. And as grievers, we're not asking you to have the answers, but it would be really helpful, I think, if sometimes people ask the curious question. I'm glad you brought that up because I think the important thing that we wanted to get across through this project and through this, this idea of, of how is today and this octopus is trying to make this experience much more accessible for people who going through it and 
don't have language and don't have a space to see themselves in. So asking something like, how is today instead of how are you? How are you is a, a greeting. How are you? Yep, yeah, fine. Immediate response, particularly for an English person. Whereas how is today? It's noticing that today is different to yesterday. So maybe yesterday was fucking awful. Or maybe tomorrow is really scary because you can't actually think beyond the present moment. You can't actually think beyond right now. After the year mark, that's when it gets difficult. I remember, I mean, lasagnas aside, there were brownies, there was everything. <laughs> we had people stuffed in the house for months. And then it was the memorial, then it was the funeral. And there were all of the other people's funerals as well, because we were with lots of other people who died. And it was kind of like a circus. And I have to admit, it was quite exciting in some parts. I was 13, nothing exciting had ever happened to me. And suddenly everybody at school knew my name. My name was in the papers. People wanted to talk to us that were journalists. Obviously we didn't do that and it was horrifying when they asked, but it was all just this kind of, it was a circus. And after the year mark, people sort of washed their hands of it and they thought, well, you've, you've had your year now and you've mourned, you've grieved and it should sort of be to bed. You know, there's closure at least. And I remember that word closure was banded around a lot. What really struck me meeting you was, oh my gosh, I'm not a freak for feeling like grief is this thing that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And yes, of course, it, it is completely different to the time that you lose the person. Like you said, you're in complete shock. But then there is this other feeling that you have, which is completely different to other feelings, which is grief, because it is connected to a person that no longer exists, but they exist within your body, they exist within your memory, they exist within the structures of your life. This octopus is the best way I think I found, which is maybe why I connected so much to it, because it's it really describes what that feeling is to me. And it can shape shift, you know, and it has its eight tentacles. So it can be feeling anxious. It can also be feeling panic. And it's holding each of these emotions of these states in its hands and waving them and saying, yep, it's all of these. It's all of these today, or it's three of these today, or it's something completely, completely different. Exactly. And I think people are often scared of talking about other people's grief or asking them questions because they think that the octopus will spew black ink in their face because they believe that they don't want to talk about it. And that may be true in some situations, particularly if there's lots of people, but between the people who really care about you, I really believe that asking a curious question at any point about their grief, and it doesn't have to be how is today. How is today is an example of a curious question. And the definition of a curious question in our minds is one that takes energy to create. It's not a question that you've heard before. It is bespoke. It is one that is in response to what you've heard as opposed to thinking of the question before you respond. Mm -hmm. Julia Samuels, arguably the best bereavement counselor in the UK, said to us, the biggest problem is people don't ask the questions because they feel like they don't have the answers. And that is what this podcast and what our mission is all about. It's all about encouraging friends and colleagues and the wider community to ask a question irrespective of having the answers, but not just any question, a curious question, because we really believe that grievers are not 
upset with you for asking the question. It's actually the silence that makes the octopus something to be ashamed of, and it shouldn't be. So what are three things that you would tell your friends back when it happened? Three things that you think would be useful for them to hear about how they should and could help you and and what they could ask you other than how is today? First thing I'd love to say is thank you because it wasn't easy for them. And I know they tried their best and it was new to them as much as it was to me. The second is there are a couple people who I think understood that this is something that lasts a lifetime and still to this day send messages on Father's Day, just checking in. And, you know, sometimes I don't respond, but those little extra pieces of effort and curious questions are deeply meaningful. And I think that is something that I've tried to adopt in terms of how I support other people who are grieving. And honestly, I just send people texts saying, how is today on a regular, but sort of periodic basis. And then I guess thirdly would be um, emphasizing that it's often a case of trying to, to see the octopus, to have the antennae open. And a couple of my friends were really good at this. And I really don't want in any way for this to come across like, I'm criticizing any of my friends because I really believe they did a wonderful job with the tools that they had. You know, there are a couple people who just, they saw the octopus, they realized it, they sensed it. They knew when, you know, when I was not keen to go on a night out and go and drink and party at university, it wasn't because I didn't want to go and do those things. It was because I was perhaps ashamed of, of my grief or felt guilty that, I was I was high when when my mother needed me and when my brother needed me and when my sister needed me and when we got the awful news that my dad had passed away and just being perceptive to the octopus would be something that I'd encourage all those wonderful empathetic caring people who who want to help their friends go through you know one of the most difficult things that I think any human being goes through which is losing someone you deeply love so Albie we've spoken about so much on this first episode we've spoken about your dad and it's been lovely to hear so much more about him we've talked about how you dealt with grief not knowing exactly what to do as a child in this situation, not having any sort of tools or understanding that this is something that you would be forced to sort of carry for the rest of your life. And we've talked about how even though friends and and colleagues and classmates, even with the best of intentions, they were not given the right support to to know that it's so important to keep addressing the person, not, not addressing the feeling, always speaking to that person as if they are your friend and just to keep checking in mm. with how is today, with seeing the octopus, with the endless love that you would, you would be giving to your friend anyway. And I wanted to end on something that I'm really curious about that would be nice to end the episode, which is if your, if your dad was here now, what do you think he would say to you? I think he would be proud of me for wearing my proverbial heart on my sleeve and for trying to turn my personal darkness 
into into light for for other people you know clem you and i are really doing this because we want to help people and we want to make sure that if there are other 19 year olds and 13 year olds or 75 year olds that are going through grief that you know we've done our bit to try and help them you know it's going to be difficult to to change the world but you know maybe just one curious question at a time we can we can reimagine grief and mm. i feel a real sense of connection to him actually having this conversation with you because i don't talk about him as much as i used to i mean i still try and bring up all of the funny stories um that involve him and there are plenty that i haven't shared with you today i feel he would just be proud of me and um the love between us is is always strong, but um, particularly, particularly right now. I'm sure he really would, Albie. Thanks, Clem. And a final question then that I want to ask you is, how is today? Today is really great, Clem. I'm super excited about this journey that we're going to go on. I'm super scared about this podcast being released because there's a lot of vulnerability in it. But also I feel good about the vulnerability and I think it's important. And we've got some great guests coming up. We've got Andrew Strauss, the former captain of England cricket. We've got Benj Pasek, a wonderful human being who wrote the music to La La Land and wrote and directed Dear Evan Hansen. We've got the lovely Leila Hussain, a fascinating FGM activist. And we also have Zach Williams, an entrepreneur who runs a company called Prepare Your Mind, who's also the son of one of my favorite human beings, Robin Williams. There's one person I've missed out, but that leads me nicely into my question to you, Clemmy, which is, is there anyone you'd like to say, how is today to? So I'm going to ask, how is today to my sister? Because if what we're saying is helping people bear their grief and hold their grief, as they go through life is as easy as seeing this octopus, noticing this octopus and saying, how is today? Then I think it's only fitting that I have a conversation like this first with my sister who hasn't spoken to me about her grief before and I haven't opened up to her. So I think there's a reason why you and I opened up to each other as strangers, but it's only fitting after this two-year journey that I go and speak to her. Clemmy, thank you so much for embracing your vulnerability and being willing to have that conversation with your sister, Nat. And I just want to say thank you for your curious questions. And I'm excited to go on this How Is Today journey with you, one curious question at a time. Thanks, Albie. So next time, I'll be speaking to my sister, Natalie Clough, which will be a terrifying but hopefully nourishing conversation about our grief. Thanks for listening to this first episode of How Is Today. We want you to join us on this mission and be part of the big conversation. So find us on Instagram at How Is Today or online at howistoday.com. And remember, if your friend has an octopus, don't be scared if you don't know how to talk about it. Just ask a curious question, starting with How Is Today? How is Today is produced and edited by Sophie Black.